Welcome to Lean Back. I'm Lisa. And I'm Laura. And today's topic is passion. Um, and I'm super excited to talk about it because I think about it and I lecture about it a lot. And I think that I'm most curious, Laura, about how you think people use passion to talk about their daily lives. Well, I think people have different ideas of what passion is. I mean, passion can be a romantic feeling that that people have for someone and that's separate from passion is maybe like a political motivation. And maybe that's different from passion as a, a way of framing your experience, mm-hmm. like vivid things that are moments of joy to you. I do think passion though, because it has all of these implications can be overused. Like I feel like I hear people talking about passion in a very basic way, which is disappointing because passion can refer to things that are incredible and intense and exciting. But I, I'm disappointed because I hear people talking about passion about things that I don't think they're really passionate about. I hear people say that they're passionate about travel. And I'm like, so, so people will be like, I love to travel. And I'm like, really? What do you know about any other country? Would you be willing to couch surf or stay with a stranger or stay in a hostel with 50 other strangers? I mean, would you suffer at all to see other places? Would you go somewhere and not take a single picture to show mm-hmm. people on Facebook? If you're going to call something a passion, it's something you're willing to struggle for. When you ask, you know, how do people talk about passion, I want to hear them talking about it in that way, where it's something that they will, you know, like put parts of their life on the line or they'll sacrifice their comfort. They'll talk about it with a certain type of intensity. Um, but I don't think that's always true. So I, f- I feel like we have to make a distinction between how people use passion and common parlance and what we really think passion is. Yeah, I mean, I like two senses of passion. I like the notion that it's an uncontrollable emotion. Passion is, because that's sort of, that's how I think it's used a lot. It's this this jouissance sometimes or the thing that you're referring to that's so intense about an experience that's corporeal, that's inside of the flesh, that leaps out, that is uncontained. I'm interested, obviously since I write about political emotions, I'm interested in things that feel uncontainable. Um, mostly because they lead us back to conversations about desires that are foreclosed upon by you know, political structures or by conventions that deny us our ability to access that desire. So that's one sense I'm really interested in passion. And the other sense is the sense that I think you just talked about is the sacrifice and the way in which passion and sacrifice go together. I want to talk about it in all of the ways because it's such a dense and messy series of emotional and political and social moves that it's interesting to me. I don't know if a lot of people would describe me as passionate, but I would about ideas so I think about myself as intellectually passionate you know just inexhaustibly curious and hungry and definitely willing to make sacrifices you know to pursue ideas I also think that there's a part of that that's about commitment 
you know, that the sacrifice and the commitment go hand in hand to produce, you know, a dense side of passion that is about longevity and about stability and about attention span and about engagement and about tenacity, perhaps. And um, patience. And patience, yeah, Passionate. for sure. Yeah, because I feel like whether it's in the interpersonal register where you're thinking about romantic passion or the intellectual political register where we're thinking about political emotions and how they can be mobilized or captured or destroyed. For me, I think that I'm most interested in how people can overcome the structures that impede their ability to confront desire. And so I think that that happens in the interpersonal realm with dating or with partnering or with sex and on the political side with attaining political goals, right? So for me, passion is a space of convergence of my interests around gender sex issues and hardcore political engagement and organizing and about how to harness one into the other because I talk a lot about how especially for young kids who are coming up and interested in politics it's always hard because they're too young to be in the rooms where the sex and the politics happen so it's hard to talk to them about how much sex frames politics and how much politics frames sex in terms of cultivating relationships, in terms of cultivating fantasies of identification, in terms of understanding gender politics as they pertain to public policy, as they pertain to punishments and rewards. Like as somebody who's hyper aware of how that kind of social brutality functions around sex and politics, for me it's very clear that passion is the vector in which it's all written together and it becomes very blurred and messy. That's some of the, the density of the concept of passion that I think about pretty much every day all day <laughs> it's like desire <laughs> right you know and the way that it's punished or rewarded I like that that read of how dense passion is and I also like how passion can be equated to political feelings and also feelings of sexuality mm -hmm. and expression and I, I think despise a lot of times the misuse of passion in like uh, frameworks of hatred where people say, oh, yeah. I hate this with a passion. And I, I feel like people also are really passionate, and I see this in particular online. They're passionate about things that they're critical about. Like, they're very open about the things that they don't like. And people, I mean, it's not just uh, high school posturing where people talk shit about, you Whatever, know, yeah. People in order to connect with one another or find common ground. Um, it's like real adults that connect on the basis of disliking the same kinds of things and people place their political expressions and things that they are critical of and not the things that they love. That's funny. I, I said to somebody today, uh, you know, they were asking about my, my political work and I'm like, I'm not a joiner. I'm just, I'm like not a joiner. I don't want to join your club. I don't want to be a member of the thing. <laughs> and one of the reasons why I think that I'm so... I would describe myself as so passionate is because I refuse to affiliate to that level of identification with ideology in some ways. I'm like, the thing that spurs me is the curiosity. I'm interested in the endless untangling. I'm interested in the play and the joy that comes from, you know, being the dog chasing the ball. <laughs> I want to keep chasing all the balls down and see how they taste and what their texture is and how fast they bounce and how far they're thrown. 
And for other people, I think they short circuit out and then their passion becomes the identification with the object. And so on the other podcasts in season um, one and season two, I talked a lot about dangerous attachments that are identification attachments. And so I'm very suspicious of that, which is why I'm not much of a joiner. And I sort of see myself, you know, of organizations, but outside of them as not as a non-member who participates very actively. Well, it undermines the potential for passion. Yeah. Because, like, on an individual um, basis, like, it can be an expression of yourself. Yeah. Like, passion can be an opportunity to express your queerness. Yeah, it's creative. It's got (laughs) creative. But then once it becomes a static identification, it becomes banal. And I'm not interested in banal. I'm just, I'm not. But on the the side that you were talking about in terms of people identify kind of... On the side that you were talking about with people identifying with negative things, I think about that, I, as I'm thinking about Nazism a lot, I just taught a class on it, and thinking about demagoguery and about identifications with um, brutal, violent power and what that feels like. And the reason why those things, those movements, those leaders, those organizations burn out is because they can't sustain passion. All they have left is brute force. And the limits of political identification, I think, are tested at the edge of passion, which is why I think the state has such a vested interest in destroying people's sex lives, whether they're queer or whether they're hetero or whether they're having sex in wedlock or outside. The state controls sex because sex is where passion and politics meet. And, you know, if there's anything I think that the second wave of feminism contributed to our notion of passion, it was about how sex is a political act and about how the personal is political and that has not changed it's gotten more complicated and in some ways i think more obvious that controlling sex is about controlling people's ability to tap into passion and that passion is actually what the engine of creativity is i mean i feel like any kind of social convention is dangerous for passion i mean i feel like now in particular and especially for men like stoicism and self-control are values or or for women who like say are trying to lean in (laughs) uh there are certain kinds of values where you're supposed to be restrained and serious um and hyper uh hyper conventional or hyper conformist and i don't see where passion exists in those kinds of places. I mean, but I like your thinking about constraints, um, mostly because I think passion is a space where bondage is a large and looming consideration. I think that passion is the emotion around which all of the language of constraints and restraints and um, bondage emerge as I don't know, linguistic constructs that help us to understand when we feel repressed and when we can feel free. And so for me, I feel like passion is a huge well of creativity that you can continue to dip into that pushes back against the constraints and restraints of um, repression. And so for me, I see it as a liberatory thing, which is probably why we don't see a lot of it in fascist spaces. <laughs> but it's an antidote <laughs> to fascism. What I'm saying is, is that for me, I feel like hardcore jouissance, hardcore passion, relentless sacrificial engagement with the interesting, whatever that may be, is an antidote to fascism. 
I mean, we see passion a lot in political poetry and, like, activist oh, yeah. poetry. I mean, they're loud and vibrant and playful, confrontational mm-hmm. sometimes. I, I wonder if you think, though, that passion be- can become too confrontational. I mean, I, I know there's the term crimes of passion, uh, and yeah. sometimes they're misappropriated, but I see a lot of, you know, passionate act- activists that become confrontational to maybe the point of being, like, punched drunk from... Oh, yeah. <laughs> Freedom know. high is what they <laughs> called it in the civil rights movement. Yeah. Right. And so, I mean, ha- what... How does passion become, like, dark? Ego. Ego, because then it becomes about what other people see you as instead of the struggle for the ethical right or the struggle for the struggle's sake. So I think it's the... That's why I think it's passion is a really interesting place to untangle ego and desire and ego function. I'm thinking a lot about the... I've been rereading a bunch of Frankfurt School stuff and Marcuse in in particular and thinking about the one-dimensional man and eros and civilization, thinking about how important it is for the state to harness passion to get people to be domesticated and docile bodies to perform you know citizenship in ways that are productive for the state's interest and not necessarily their own and so for me especially in this political moment um, you know at the beginning of 2017 right before the inauguration of Donald Trump it's very important for me to think about passion as a space of political resistance and passion as a space of coalition building and passion as a way way of, I mean, tremendously overdue reform and reconstruction of institutions. And it's going to be passion that does that. Because the, the thing about passion is that it functions on all three levels of power. It functions on the interpersonal level, it functions on the institutional level, and it can fun- function on the structural level. I've also been reading a bunch of Arthur Schlesinger Jr.'s writings in the early 1960s about hope and liberalism and thinking a lot about how hope is used as a frame for passion for the nation and about how optimism becomes one vector of expressing like citizenship as passion. For me, though, as I've spoken about on other episodes, I'm just really um, skeptical of that particular frame, and I prefer passion to hope because it's messier and it's it takes more risks and um, it's not so predicated on the past. In some ways, I feel like passion can be a really tabula rasa thing. And at least on the interpersonal level, I know I'm moving really quickly through those levels of passion, but you know, I'm reckless and messy and I like it that way. <laughs> but when I think about the interpersonal level of passion, I think about passion as um, as emotion that is this unregulated, uncontrollable thing, but then that we can control the pace and tempo and timing of. And so for me, as a political activist and as a sexual person and as a civic in- civically engaged human who's interacting with lots of people in lots of different ways all the time, I'm interested in how pace and tempo and scope and timing can create spaces of possibility to consider passion in different ways, right? So, I mean, I think a lot of us have had the the, the experience of having um, a romantic partner who becomes an intellectual partner or an intellectual partner who then we have romantic interest in or the slippage between sex and brain work. And I'm very interested in that because I think that that's, it's, it's in the relationship between the sex and the brain, which is where like solidarity actually comes from, even if it's not fully realized in actual doing the sexing. You know, <laughs> I think that's the less, that's actually the least important part. It's about the fantasy of communality and coming together and building a thing together, which is 
is where um, political potential resides. Well, that's, I think, part of the importance of community building and coalition building, because I think a lot of young people especially have a lot of directionless energy that can maybe be classified in that. Anxious energy, too. It's directionless and it's anxious. Right. Spinning really fast like with no non, outlet. <laughs> non-specific kind of desire to, like, help or be productive or to support a certain category of values. But they need the resources and the means to articulate the kinds of things, like ways to direct a certain kind of passion I don't know, I guess that's what you were talking a little bit before we started recording about charisma, which is something that I like thinking about. I mean, obviously I write about a lot of charismatic leaders. And I think about charisma as the kind of space that people take up to, to meld the intellectual and the sexy, the romantic. Like the, the charismatic leader is a symbol into which people's desired, desires are poured into and then taken out of and poured into and taken out of. And so I think charisma is what happens when people feel compelled to identify with the leader and pour their passion into the ideas of the leader. And then they also feel compelled to take those ideas back. And so charisma, I think, is a very interesting conception. I think about it a lot here in the South because we don't really have strong political parties. We just have charismatic leaders and we move from one to the other. It's like the grossest form of serial monogamy. you know, in thinking through our fidelity to, you know, the leader as the head of the party instead of the leader as the thought leader or as somebody who is shaping consensus. So I like to think about charisma as as something that can be really terrifically motivating for solidarity, but also that's something that can turn into this, you know, banal, predictable sort of thing. But I think this, I think both charisma and passion have the potential to be disappointing <laughs> and lead to dead ends and lead to dangerous attachments and and be a real bummer and a letdown. But I'm okay with that because I feel like the far the, the majority of that sentiment can be harnessed for a really productive, messy, interesting, dense discourse um, between and among people. And so I think that that, for, for me, that is co- very compelling. We talked a little bit earlier about passion sometimes leading to confrontation. But I wonder if you think the notion of passion and its mostly positive connotation, I feel like it's mostly connoted in relationships and care (laughs) about things or other people. I wonder if you think that using passion as a rhetorical style of messaging encourages mostly socially beneficial behavior. Well, I don't know because I think that there's you're, we're uncovering here the dynamic of passion that is extremely heterosexist where men can be passionate and objects of passion and then they're also supposed to be stoic. So I think that there's absolutely a gender double bind um, around men, probably straight and and queer that is a problem and I think that it functions for women too because women who are passionate are messy emotional <laughs> you know creatures and the reason feeling dichotomy becomes a cudgel you know with which to wield against women who are passionate and so I think that the, you know so I think that yes that it's true that passion can be you know a an inexact tool to describe the complexity of the emotion and its political effects 
But on the whole, I like it because I think that people really genuinely want to feel it. So, you know, I think about Laura Kipnis's book Against Love, which I've talked about here and in other episodes, and I think about other manifestos that, that think through the limits of people's attachments to convention. And what happens when people hit the limit of uh, that convention is that they want to feel passionate, so they go out and have affairs to feel alive. So there's, you know, humans, I think, are have a drive towards that kind of aliveness, that corporeal, satisfied, uncertain, playful problematic, potentially dangerous kind of sexual or intellectual engagement that is what provides the edge to their life. So I'm okay if people fuck that up sometimes because <laughs> I don't know how else you get empirical data about the limits of your desire except to keep trying and trying things that you think you might like. You know, and that's an empirical sort of endeavor. So yeah, you're going to win some and you're going to lose some, I feel like. I mean, in almost every work of literature in all time, like the protagonists are always driven by passion in almost every case. I mean, maybe drop like Camus, the stranger, like and all of Faulkner. <laughs> yeah. Maybe drop some, some things from that. But I mean, I mean, especially in like early literature, I mean, in comedy and tragedy, I mean, passion was at the centerpiece yeah. for particularly in theater, like all literature. So I, I don't know. It's a, a driver of like art and like the gospels, <laughs> right? <laughs> I don't know. And the characters that you root for and identify with, even tragic characters. You know, like passion's the centerpiece of tragedy, and uh, you know, a tragic character is one that like lays down their life, literally, <laughs> to stand by a certain ideal, usually some kind of like moral ideal or a, a passionate love or, I mean, something that they refuse yeah. to sacrifice about themselves. There is something I think heroic about passion. Maybe that's my why I'm drawn to it since I write about, you know, her- heroes that are mobilizing against odds, against the state. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that passion is a heroic thing, and I think people feel heroic when they experience it, even if it's in, within the context of something that is so organizationally mundane as an affair, you know? But I also feel like th- there is such an anti-passion orientation of Americans in particular that it's still worth exploring passion as a vector of resistance. I mean, I travel a lot, <laughs> like a lot, And it's always remarkable to come back to the United States and see how much sexual restraint, intellectual restraint is being exerted here. And there have been a couple of think pieces in the last week that are about how, you know, Germans are saying that Americans are too tepid on resistance in this era of Trump. And we don't have the emotional register to actually be able to mobilize against fascism. And that's a very interesting conversation, I think, because it speaks to the density of political emotions and the way in which cultures um, shun the performance of certain emotional registers as a way of creating space for identifications that are particularly harmful um, for people who are being oppressed in the culture. So I don't know. I think it's also possible that passion is the space in which to expand the way that Americans relearn how to feel as political and sexual agents in a culture that is sexually stunted 
you know, and massively repressed and a place where people are both craving and fearing the same kinds of political repression that they want for other people's sex lives. I mean, I write a lot about reflexive sadomasochism and what happens when white people, white men in particular, in a political culture see themselves as hero and victim simultaneously. And so I think passion lends itself to perhaps the embodiment of that, but I think more so the critique of it. Is like it's what it's the passion for self-preservation, the passion for the community, the passion for others, all of those forms of love that we talked about in the earlier episodes where we we you know we discussed brotherly love and agape and romantic love and infatuation. I think that passion is the thing that ties them all together in a way that creates space for solidarity against the impulse to repress. So, so earlier I expressed kind of a dissatisfaction with how passion's not properly articulated. Yeah. Um, because maybe you get lost in this empty space where things aren't productive. But I kind of want to take that back. Okay. Did I convince you? you? <laughs> <laughs> now that you've said that, you know, I, I feel like um, passion can be about the impractical and the fanciful and your immediate feelings and how that can be a, a point of connection. Uh, between people and I've, I thought about like passion and pop you know like music oh, yeah and how it can be uh, just a rejection of the capitalist milieu um, uh, that it can be in a, a disidentification with you know institutions that don't support you I don't know I like that I like your emotional discussion of passion and I I feel like I had been <laughs> trying to be very rational about it and it seems like that can maybe be opposed. <laughs> I mean, you know, I've said in earlier episodes, I have a different threshold for risk and I have a different threshold for uncertainty and I have a different threshold for messiness. So I am not saying that everybody else sees passion the way that I do. But I am saying that I think that there is a way of understanding passion as a kind of social and personal indulgence that could be extremely subversive. I mean, in a culture that tells you that you have to serve the capitalist master and keep working and working yourself to death, there is a space, I think, for a conversation about self-care. You hear it all the time in the activist circles about how self-care is a radical act, and everybody quotes Audre Lorde, and I think that that's, there's useful space there, right? But the problem is, is that the self-care can't turn to narcissism, and that's the ego function. So as long as the self-care is functioned on, you know, creating space to creatively and productively resist, you know, the automation of the self as an extension of capitalist culture, then I'm like right on about that, you know. But once it turns into, into narcissistic or just tremendous, tremendously unproductive navel-gazing, then it's no longer passionate, I think. So I think that the point that you are making is like, can you be passionate about puzzling? Or can you be passionate <laughs> about knitting? Or can you be passionate about gardening? I mean, I guess you can, but I don't know that that's the best way to think about passion as a, as a production of relationships between humans, except if you see it as a way of short-circuiting the tremendous fidelity between people and capital. Well, I mean, to think about passion in that way at all, in some ways I feel like it's kind of a privilege because I mean, I, it seems like a lot of people don't ha have 
the energy. Or the leisure. It's or, bourgeois. Or the leisure it's super bourgeois. To have that kind of passion or to even like try to subvert their connection to capital because all of they're their not connected to it. It's <laughs> spent on like yeah. mind numbing need for the minimum wage. So, I mean, in, in what way does passion play into their life? Well, but I think here's how I think it does. I mean, I think that there is an economy of passion. Also, I'm straight making this up right on my head right now. I'm theorizing on the fly, as I am prone to do. Uh, so it seems to me that the entire debate about welfare is about controlling passions. And so the bourgeois and the 1% are allowed to have unrestrained passion and pussy grab all they want, and the poor people have to be tested for SNAP benefits and the poor people can't have contraception, and the poor people can't have abortion, and the poor people have to have some sort of not anal, not oral, man-on-woman, missionary sex in order to be considered good citizens. And the fact that that conversation is happening and is a permanent feature of American political life suggests to me that the economy of passion is what is actually driving a tremendous amount of our political discourse. So yeah, those the, the poor people and people who are disenfranchised don't get to feel the same kind of passions unless they can find the solidarity. And so, you know, I made that comment earlier in the episode about Freedom High. I mean, that's certainly how civil rights workers talk about their time in the movement, in the black liberation struggles. They talk about the kinds of pleasures and solidarities. And I literally just came from lecturing about the civil rights movement. And I was talking about how right before King was assassinated at the Lorraine Motel, what was he doing? He was having a pillow fight. He was having a pillow fight with his top brass in the SCLC in a motel on beds with pillows. What does that tell us about the nature of intense struggle? Dude knew he was close to being assassinated. He was being constantly harassed by the FBI. He was being profiled. You know, he was being followed. Memphis was a tinderbox ready to explode. And what does he do before he gets ready to go to dinner? Exhausted, demoralized. He has a pillow fight, which is a total expression of male passion for one another. It's physical, it's tactile, it's corporeal. It takes up this very intimate bedroom space. It's sexy, it's homo-nationalist. I mean, it has all of these vectors, the fact that he is having this pillow fight before he's assassinated, that I think give us some insight into what happens when people struggle together. The, I mean, the, the tragedy, of course, is that he's assassinated, but the silver lining of that story is that there is a space for um, passion that exists to help knit people together even in the face of extreme adver adversary, right? Which is why I like that thinking about passion as having a sacrificial corollary. When you talk about it that way, you say, uh, you know, there's a space for passion, but it also seems to me that passion is a space where you can exist. As an like, orientation. Yes. Like as an, ontolo as an ontology. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like a space of affect or connection that gives you some kind of momentary reprieve even, even when you're under intense amounts of suffering. Yes, I think that I think both are true. I think that there are spaces where passion emerges as this uh, sticky substance that connects people together. I guess I'm using that ironically but not ironically, right? It is this, you know, space filled with matter and life and it's germinal or seminal in that sort of way. 
Uh, but yes, I think that it can also be an orientation towards being. I think that there is a lot to be said about passion as a space for understanding the self as self and the self in relation to others, which is why I think I've been, I mean, which is why it's been very interesting reading some of this Frankfurt stuff in light of the Trump election is thinking about the relationship between Eros and civilization and sort of how masculinity remakes itself as this extremely, it's not even Janus faced, it's like literally unidimensional kinds of masculinity that gets jammed down our throats. It's non-consensual, it's hyper-phallicized, it's assertive and violent, and it is, I think, a way of understanding how power is this brutal force that only has this extremely limited roadmap. So again, that's why I think that passion can function as this either ontology or fleeting space with which to resist. I mean, you know, there's this whole tremendous amount of sociological literature on, you know, weapons of the weak and micro resistance. And there are lots of names for it, but it's like the daily life banal resistance that people perform. So whether that's withholding your labor from a teacher in class or sabotaging the plantation or poisoning the overseer's children's pancakes or whether it's slowing down the process of gutting the EPA or whether it's going to see Star Wars and identifying with Princess Leia as part of the resistance. All of those things are part of micro-resistance in ways that build a much larger tapestry of people understanding themselves as having the potential to undermine structures of power that that repress them. And so I'm down for it whether you, you know, understand that jouissance or passion, you know, this orientation towards joy and connection is the thing that's driving you or whether it's a fleeting thing that emerges in times of extreme stress and strain that aren't, you know, that aren't part of one's orientation 24-7. I'm okay with it being both or either of those things at any given time. For me, obviously, it's more ontological. It's more of a permanent orientation towards you know, play and skepticism and play and connection than it is a, something that just comes and goes. But also I think and read about this stuff for my entire life's work. So I spend a lot more time engaging in sort of the notion of political emotions as things that can be mobilized or embodied in different fashions. And other people don't have necessarily have access to those kinds of frameworks. But for me, as I think about you know, passion as part of our conversation about leaning in and leaning back. I feel like passion is absolutely connected to leaning back rather than leaning in. I think being a sex object is about leaning in. I think I think about hyper identification with romance as being about leaning in. But passion and engagement with the complexity and density and difficulty of human interaction, that is intensely passionate work. I think empathy is passionate work. I think that restraint in some sometimes can be passionate. Giving people space to feel in their way, with their words, at their pace, that is also part of passion. So I like when you were talking about patience and passion because I think those two things actually are highly compatible ideas you know, they go together very well, that in order to be able to have a passionate life, you have to understand that you can't have it all now. It's not all about you. It can't all be supersized. It can't be on demand. You can't just have a remote control that gives you all of the things and feeds all of the needs because most of those desires are manufactured by capital. So it's, it's a much longer game to figure out what one wants and how one wants it, especially not just in the context of your own physical embodiment, but also in the context of your community with other people. 